you know, this, this thing that we are talking about is actually a way of life. It's not a set of um, belief constructs. It ought to translate into functional way that we live in every circumstance. Um, the kingdom of God is manifested in tangible ways. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. These are not just words. They're descriptive words of a way of, of an actual way of life. And although we engage these unusual and somewhat ponderous concepts, the stark reality is that they're meant to transform our lives and to secure us firmly, securely within the domain under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he promised us. This is how we talk about abundant life. You know. um, and that in the midst of all that is going on. Anyway, I, I'm, I'm not sure if you need lights on me or anything for the, for the filming. Oh, you, okay, excellent. Well, I, I think I've told all the jokes I know. <laughs> <laughs> What I will do is I'll continue to summarize because not much is lost in the process before I engage the new, the new things. So, <clears throat> faith, the, the deliberate and intentional positioning ourselves vulnerably in the belief that God exists as our Father and that he will show up, the, the histemi function of God that he will actually arise in our circumstances is what induces us to enter into God's rest where we understand that the sufficiency of his mighty power is the guarantee of our well-being. And you remember me talking to you just a bit about learning to rule and that the first order of sovereignty is the well-being of those who are subject to your rule. Um, by faith, then, we enter into that rest. It's, and it's not the cessation of activity. It is rather the posture from which we labor. When you, when you labor from the posture of the sovereign authority of Christ, the goal is not about outcomes, because the outcomes are assured. The goal, the goal is really not about what you can get from God. Um, we, we have been sold a bill of goods. We've been asked to pay again for that which is already ours by gifting. So God is simply unhooking us from the paradigm of the evil one and bringing us back to the peaceful, restful environment out of which we were designed to operate. So we talked about what, it, what, is, meant to, what is meant by the distinctions of authority between plenary authority, which is the source from which authority arises, and 
the, which would be the dunamis of God, and the exousia, the practical um, relational function to authority. See, one ha the, in, in, in all matters of authority, in all matters of sovereignty, there are two, two general issues. The first is the source of the authority to govern. And we went back and we talked about how the source of the authority by which the kingdom of God is established is a grant of authority by God the Father to the Lord Jesus Christ conveyed in the promise all authority in heaven and on earth would be given to him as was contained in the promise of the second psalm. And by the way, that authority is conveyed by God to Christ on the basis of, on the basis of a relationship with God. Even with Christ. Because you remember, as the second psalm began to speak of this constitution and conveyance of power, it, bega it began by saying, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give to you the nations of the earth for your, for your possession. It all base, is based upon a relationship of sonship. Why? Because sonship is the prerequisite for being an heir. That's Galatians. We are sons of God and therefore we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Uh, a joint heir is one who shares in the same uh, possessory interest. I was looking in my notes for the term for joint heir, and it's sum, sun, uh, uh, something. I'll, I'll come upon it in a moment. Now, because you are vested in an authority that is already fully released to Christ, when you're in his kingdom, you can rest because a sufficient authority exists to guarantee your well-being in every circumstance. And we spoke about that in terms of eternal life, in terms of Zoe, a life that is not attached to anything in creation but transcends creation itself. And it is the very life of God as opposed to a life that was given to you as you came from your mother's womb, which is, of course, the term bios or bios, and a life that is understood primarily through, through the issue of uh, your soul, the suke. When your life, when you're born again, when your life from God dominates your natural life, then and in that case, your life is taken from the realm of the eternal. And last night we talked about the fact that 
God created you with the capacity to contain this life. He put in you a capacity, a container of this life. And that container is called spirit. Now, it is not a given that the container is filled up. So although you have a spirit, it is necessary at a certain point for that container to be filled up. And that occurs when you're born again of the Spirit. Then the Spirit of God fills the container of your being with the life of God. Until then, your spirit has a measure of life, but it does not dominate your thinking or your way of being. So, because the body without the spirit is dead. So you do have spirit and life of your spirit within your body. But by and large, beyond the measure of life, it is not, it, it is not operational to the point of being able to dominate. So when you're, when you're born again of the Spirit, you're filled up. And God keeps giving you greater and greater measures of the Holy Spirit. Commensurate with the increase in your maturity and therefore the increase in your responsibilities. So you'll discover from time to time you're in a new place in God. And that is because God intends to sustain this eternal life in you with a new and greater endowment of the Spirit of God, which is in fact the, the manner in which he conveys this eternal life to you in greater and greater measures. One of the in indications that you're receiving greater and greater endowments of the life of the Spirit within you is as you become mature, it's noticeable in the fact that God deploys you to greater and greater uh, offices, callings, and tasks. So for example, Jesus being born of the Spirit uh, from the time he emerged from his mother's womb, is subject to training for 30 years. And then God deploying him says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Spirit of God comes down on him and anoints him by resting on him in the form of a dove. Now until that time, he was subject to tutors and governors. He was not ready for that level of conveyance of sovereign divine authority in as much as the volume of the flow of eternal life in him was only sufficient for those aspects of his, of his life that existed previously. So we have, we're observing about this Zoe that it is somewhat of a parallel to Bios in this regard. A small child is very much alive, but the incidences of his or her life are not comparable to the life of, an, of the same person as an adult. And so when you're a child, you act as a child, you understand as a child, and you think as a child. The same thing is true. And, 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 and it's excusable for children to be children. It's not excusable when for the time you are to be grown adults, 
that you're still on milk. It's not excusable. Because to whom much is given, much is required. Because it's, it's consistent with the order of being. It's consistent with the order of being. So when you reach a certain place in your maturity, it is to be anticipated that you become, that you will become the face of he who has all authority. And governmentally, that term is referred to as to be being a plenty potentiary, which is to say that you are the, the, um, the revealed potential of the one who has plenary authority. So if you see me, you've seen my father, because the father and I are one, because there's no possibility that when he has trained you and deployed you for functioning, there's no possibility that he will abandon you. There's no possibility. Because it doesn't have anything to do with you. It has to do with his nature. With his divine nature. Now, that leads us to, and I, I think that we ended last, the last session with uh, a deconstruction of the 82nd Psalm in which God spoke to the gods. And we talked about the term uh, Elohim, translated God, which is an aspect of the character of God himself that is related to majesty, and therefore the term magistrate. So there's an aspect of our beings that, that is designed to carry the righteous judgments of God in the earth, in all of our circumstances. So when we, are, when we are fully of age and deployed, we are the Elohim of God. We are the majesty of God. And that majesty is demonstrably, tangibly available in the form of how we judge matters. That is why it is imperative that we reach a point from which we will no longer consider anyone according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Because that is the primary way that we exercise the majesty of God. And by the way, this is one of the elementary doctrines uh, that we spoke about uh, a long time ago. Um, in that, in the elementary doctrines, we talk about eternal judgments. We have, we, have mis we have misunderstood the meaning of eternal judgment and we've considered it to be the judgment that emits from the great white throne. When that is not an elementary doctrine that would affect us in this life because we have nothing to do with it. We are neither the judges in that capacity nor are we exercises of authority in that capacity. So if these are foundations of our faith not to be exercised except out of time at that time then it's irrelevant to us because it concerns us in no other way except that we are subjects of that judgment. We don't judge anything 
So if the doctrine of eternal judgments being a foundational doctrine relates to the great white throne judgment as it has been supposed, then it's, it ought not be included in an elementary doctrine. Because it'll simply be what happens when it happens. And you don't have any part of it except standing before the bar. Eternal judgment, you see, is not that. It's the requirement that you judge everything from an eternal point of view. So you see no one any longer according to the flesh. Because if you see them according to the flesh, you can't judge them from an eternal point of view. If you see circumstances as they affect your flesh, and if you judge according to the measures of your soul, you cannot see nor are you acting from an eternal point of view. Because we said that you are to be seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And I, we opened up just briefly the notion of what is meant to be in the heavenly realms. And we said that there are times when it refers to the highest of the heavens, times when it refers to the demonic realm, times when it refers to the, the realm above the earth that contains the sun, the moon, and the stars. But then there are times when it's a metonymy, as uh, Dr. Segi is fond of saying, where the part is used to reference the whole. Just like when we talk about sexual lust, as lust, it's an example that is used to reference something else. And last night we unpacked that to say that uh, the, the word for lust is the word epitomea, from which we get the English word epitome. So somebody who is the epitome of a thing. In present parlance, we'd refer to epitome as the poster boy or the poster girl for a certain type of behavior. That's when lust dominates your nature. And the metonymy is that we, we select sexual lust, which is one of the most common ways that Persons set aside every other conviction, every other restraint in order to pursue the thing. Which is what a lust is, the concept of lust. When you become the epitome of the thing, it is that you're not barred by any restraint from pursuing that end. Okay? Uh, so in the same way when we talk about um, representing the Lord, when, when we speak of how his power, his authority works through us, it is that we become the visible representation of who the Lord is. Now this morning I want to move over into, uh, before, I, before I continue on, on the matter of grace, uh, and we had, last night we established that there were five graces, which are the means by which, or the packaging by which, the sovereign authority and power of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he received by grant from God, on the basis of which he conducts the affairs of his kingdom and invites you to escape from the control of the kingdom of darkness, guaranteeing you that even in the process, the gates of hell, 
shall not prevail against your activities being duly commissioned and appointed by the sovereign Lord who, who took the keys of death and hell, rendering them powerless against his kingdom. His kingdom is not of this world, nor is it of creation. We, we mentioned again last night that um, both heaven and earth were created. In the beginning, God created both of them, heaven and earth. God created the heavens and the earth. So if there is a life that exists beyond heaven and earth, it means that life is not subject to anything in creation. Such is the nature of eternal life. And if there's power that exists to bring creation into being, then creation itself is subject to that power. So nothing in creation may threaten it. So the life that you have in God, the zoe of God, is life that is undamaged by time, uninfluenced by human circumstances. And it is supported by the power that brought all of creation out of the being of God. Therefore, there is no power construct in creation that may refute the authority by which his kingdom has been established. This is what guarantees your well-being. That is why you may enter into and be at rest in him. We talked about how for 40 years, Israel was invited to enter into his rest. But they were charged somewhere along the journey of 40 years, they were charged with two things, disobedience, and rebellion. And it's the same word in the Greek. It's the word apatheo, from which we get the English word apathy. So disobedience, you see, may not be the product of an instantaneous uprising or rebellion. After you have behaved with consistency for 40 years, Ignoring the daily reminders of God's invitation to have you enter into fully trusting him. After 40 years, God will conclude you're not going to because you are apathetic. That is why he says to them, today, if you will hear his voice. Harden not your heart. Because what did they do? They put it off until tomorrow. And tomorrow and tomorrow. And then there were 40 years worth of tomorrows. And God concluded, they will never enter into my rest. God judged them. That's what it meant by swearing on oath. He was not forbidding them to enter into his rest. He was concluding that they were never going to because he extended mercy to them 
for 40 years of daily invitations to come in and possess his rest. So you can't say that God just one day judged them. No, no, not at all. All the judgments of God are conclusions of righteousness based upon the observable and uncontrovertible fact of the matter. So when God said to Adam, for example, by the sweat of your brow you will eat bread all of the days of your life, he was not cursing Adam. In fact, God never cursed Adam. He was concluding that Adam had made a choice that he could either live in the provisions of God or the only other alternative was for him to live by the sweat of his brow. There was not another alternative. He had rejected the one and he had defaulted to the other. Apathy, yes. Apathy, you see, I hear, I hear people telling me all the time, I hear preachers often will tell me, our people are not ready for this. They will admit, I cannot begin to tell you how many times I've heard from eminent preachers that what I was saying was true. Some of them would go so far as to say, you know, the Lord showed me that one time. <laughs> and they will even say, the Lord showed me that 40 years ago. <laughs> and at that point, I just shut off. This is a waste of my time. Ichabod. God is not mocked. And one of the ways that people commonly mock God is by being apathetic. The long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah for 120 years. And people refused with consistency to act. So don't say they weren't guilty. The patience of God is not endless. It ends when he concludes that you have fully made a decision and it's irrevocable. And after a generation, it could not be said that that generation was going to be redeemed. They had full, fully fallen into apatheo, apathy. Now that's why the, the context of that scripture makes sense. Where he says, now don't be like them who, who fell because of rebellion and because of unbelief. And if you're not going to be like them, here is the invitation to you today if you will hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as they did in the day of their rebellion. We talked about uh, 
grace as the administrations of God's power to us, and we distinguish that from mercy. People typically uh, refer to eleos, E-L-E-O-S, eleos, which is the term for mercy, when they actually mean either charis or propia. Charis being uh, grace at rest, the character of God at rest. And propia being the character of grace in expression. And uh, last night we spoke about the fact that uh, you are an actor if you do not possess the character of grace. Uh, These are are summary points, so I'm not re-preaching what I did last night. Um, In Greek theater, actors would get on stage and they would portray characters, hold up a mask that was either a laughing mask or a frowning mask in Greek theater. In fact, even theater bills today will indicate, you know, whether it's a comedy or tragedy, and will use those masks. Because the word charis is a representation of intrinsic grace, grace that is internal and indistinguishable from from your nature. It is a condition of being. It's a motivation of your, of your seminal character. The word seminal derived from the term for seed. It is as endemic to your personhood as, you, as that you are a person. It's inseverable from your being. It's who you are. God does things because he cannot deny himself. And exercises of charis represent the unmotivated benevolence of God. You don't have to motivate him. He is intrinsically benevolent. That is the nature of that spirit known as God. Because he is the one who would create a son and commit the representation of himself to the one that he has created. Now that is the ultimate humility. The ultimate description of humility is when you create another and commit the representation of yourself entirely to the other. Humility is not this, as we'd say in America, this aw shucks, it's not me, it's Jesus. That's, that's cheap and tawdry charis. That's eminently severable from your personhood. It's not intrinsic. Intrinsic is when you can't get rid of it. It follows you. <laughs> it's in you. It's how you respond even when you're asleep. Not that God ever sleeps. Right? So, Uh, but propia propia is the extrinsic manifestation of grace it is how you act gracefully so we use the term graceful as we speak of 
people's actions. He or she is graceful. But in Greek theater, as I was saying, they understood, and in Greek culture, they understood. You could not be graceful. You could not, by the way, the word propia is the, is the basis of the English word appropriate. Appropriate. So you act appropriately, you act gracefully on the basis of possessing an intrinsic nature of grace. So when you're just acting, holding up a mask, it is not to be presumed that you yourself are a character of grace. You're an actor. And there's a term for that. It's called hypocrite. When you're putting on an act, pretending that you're acting out of grace, because you lack the character of grace, it, it makes you a hypocrite. That is what a hypocrite is. It's not a slur word. It's not a false judgment. It's appropriately naming the thing. You cannot be anything but a hypocrite if you're acting as though you possess the character of grace, but indeed you do not. And stick around for just a little bit, your motive will become altogether apparent and disclosed. These things obviously are messages for the mature. Not to train you necessarily in how to be these things, but to enable you to accurately judge all things without being yourselves judged. Do not the scriptures say that you are given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all reach the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, not being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful schemings. Instead, speaking the truth in love, you shall in all things grow up into him who is the head from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is a call to maturity. This is how you handle eternal judgments. This is how you do things from the point of view of God. Then you are able to, able to test and to prove the good, the pleasing, and the perfect will of God. Then you can tell the holy from the profane. And you'll have no fellowship with darkness because you're not children easily deceived. And all these charlatans and profiteers, these pimps and pirates who infest the house of God 
will be thrown out like money changers. God will have a dwelling place where he may be all that he is in the, in the corporate Christ. That's what we're laboring for. To present every man complete, mature in Christ. But you have to know these things. This is part of the journey. This is the message of wisdom among the mature. My calling is not to the world. In fact, no apostle is actually called to the world. God gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints. The time when we stop trying to build our own kingdoms within the, measure, within the shadow of his kingdom, then the saints will benefit from the existence of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. If I said the things I'm saying um, to a law class, if this were a lecture on jurisprudence, they would barely get what I'm saying. They would understand certain terms that I'm using, like plenary authority, uh, sovereignty, and, and those things. But beyond that, they could not possibly lay hold of dunamis and uh, exousia and kratos and kurios and arche and majesty and elohim. <laughs> they, would sh they, would, they would stop their ears and rush on me. All right, now I want to, I want to um, finish the, uh, the pieces on, I want to finish the pieces on the delegations of the power of God that come to us through charis, through grace. Reminding you even as I go, this is speaking about specific grants of authority from God to enable and to accomplish things that are in his mind to accomplish. Reminding you in the process that his power is not derived from the consent of the governed, nor is his power derived from any agreement with anything in creation. He is beyond. So your resting in him is appropriate. You shall not be moved. You shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of... Because there's nothing in creation that can move you. In as much as you are vested in the eternal in time. I spoke yesterday to you about eon. About how a thing that is of eternal deriv derivation, appearing in time, will decide the character of the age in which it appears. And that it'll move from one age to the next, to the next, until the final uh, and original intent, what God foresaw before he created it, now becomes the visible, tangible reality. We trace that out through uh, the appearing of the Lamb, uh, or, or we, we actually trace it out through uh, the man on David's throne, um, 
promised to David, but actually the pendant from, uh, like a necklace uh, hangs from a pendant, or a pendant hangs from a necklace. Uh, it hung from the from the from the, the the covenantal promise given to Abraham. So Jesus is in, introduced as uh, the son of David, the son of Abraham, to show the connection, uh, his lordship connection to the promise that God gave to Abraham. And then, of course, uh, in in the time of Christ, he is the visible representation of that. But as he is taken into heaven. That eternal principle remains in the earth and is now embodied in his body. And at the end of this age, in the age to come, ultimately it will be the house of God or the dwelling place of God. So the principle dominates and explains the character of every age. Time does not determine how we see God. What God is doing determines what the character of that age is. Everything else is being formed around the character of that age, such as the concept of eternal life, eternal power and Godhead, everything relating to that which is transcendent of time, space and creation. With that in mind, we spoke of the five graces, five being, of course, the number of grace. The grace of salvation, we spoke of that last night, which is the transfer of citizenship. It's not about going to heaven when we die. Once you are in the kingdom of heaven, you're in the kingdom of heaven. That there are two this kingdom has two domains uh, by which the authority of Christ governs. You enter into the kingdom of heaven in the lowest of the domains, in the earth. When you're no longer suitable to live in the earth, you go to the other domain, but you're still in the same kingdom. When you are divested of this body, which is the only thing that keeps you here, when this body no longer keeps you here because its time has been served, then you automatically move to that other iteration of the kingdom of heaven. That's why it's called the kingdom of heaven. But it has two domains and it's known by the greater of the two domains. Earth is like the footstool, heaven is the throne room. One speaks of the authority, the vested authority, the other speaks of how that authority rules in the, in the least of the domains, the, ones, the one with which we are familiar. So, the grace of salvation is very much about how God rescues you from your entrapment in the kingdom of darkness and delivers you under, un, into and under the sovereign rule of the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom of heaven. We talked about the notion of citizenship briefly. I referenced the word polis, from which we get the word people, politics, population, um, policy, to show that citizenship is not 
just a one-dimensional concept. That citizenship is actually a descriptor and you are subject to and beneficiaries of all that is within that kingdom. So you were not just a farmer on the plains, so when the enemies came, uh, you were, your, your crops were trashed and you were slaughtered. You could run into the city and the city walls protected you and the city gates protected you and the city armies protected you and the king's authority guaranteed your well-being. And all of that was actually in the ancient world related to a god. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So it was a package. Citizenship was always understood to be a package that included rule, provision, protection, and responsibility. Your responsibility to that kingdom. God translated you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God. That package includes going upstairs when you're no longer downstairs. But we made salvation a discussion of going to heaven and left off all of the incidences of salvation that relate to this life for something that's already assured. So we don't know how to live here as citizens of the kingdom even though we're under the sovereign rule of Christ. Now, for our purposes, and, and not to pursue this any further, except to say this. The grace of salvation includes the right to stay permanently delivered from the domain of darkness. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against you. Now, that doesn't mean hell is attacking you. It means when you go charging through the gates of hell to rescue others, there's not a thing that the demons can do except stand aside because they do not want round two with the one who's already defeated them. They understand being subject to an authority that you come to represent the authority that has already spoiled them. They grumble and they, uh, they're not happy that you're there, you know, but they can't deny you whatever you come for. So it's not about you under defense. It's you as the aggressor. This grace is sufficient to establish you beyond the control ever again of the king whose domain you have quit and exited, ever again. Now, I hope to get to in this series something that I'm understanding to be blockage removal, which has to do with residual tentacles of your time under the rule of Satan that he hopes to assert to draw you back into that, those beggarly elements. 
But once you've been set free, he cannot arrest you and take you back as captive. You have to consent to it. You have to consent to it. But we routinely consent to it because we're ignorant of his schemes and we're even more ignorant of our authority. I've spent the last two and a half years uh, experiencing literally 150 leaders, leadership people in our house, discovering their freedom and discovering freedom that they did not know they had. People. People, in this time, in the last two and a half years, I encountered all these and more who said, I just do not feel like I can go beyond these thresholds that I'm, that I'm subject to. I, I feel that there is, I can't penetrate the ceiling above my head. <clears throat> they weren't talking about going back or backsliding or falling away. They were just saying, I feel limited. I feel hindered. And God has allowed us to see exactly how they've been entrapped in emotions that relate to the suke, how the soul interprets that which it experiences through the five senses. And those experiences predispose the emotions of people. So that whenever those emotions are excited again, they're, taken re re they're readily taken captive to those feelings, thoughts, and emotions about themselves and about their circumstances. And this is a time when God is routinely severing those ties by just having people understand how the enemy came and took possession of those emotions and keep stirring those emotions to keep them captive and to predispose their actions once they're brought back into the reminder of those emotions through circumstances in their lives. But no less than 150 people personally, and I know others like Sheba and Santash uh, who have led numerous others through these things. I hope to get to that. But, but to start talking about that now without establishing the basis of your authority is that there will be a gap that um, it, it's a bridge too far. So uh, allow me to continue just to plow through these foundational things and I hope to get to those applications. Actually, I plan to get to two specific applications. Number one is a revisitation of what we've called the armor of God and upgrade our understanding from Sunday school to current revelation. That's why, in fact, I'm having to lay out all these issues of faith. You know, we have a shield of faith. Hmm? Consider that. One of the portions of the armor is the shield of faith, wherewith you will be able to quench all of the fiery darts of the wicked. Now what on earth is a shield of faith? And what are the fiery darts of the, of the wicked? Well, 
take your application of what you know about faith. Faith is the belief that God is your Father and that He will rise up in the moment of your vulnerability. Right? So when the enemy hurls fiery darts, what are those going to be? They're going to be to stir up emotions in you that cause you to feel vulnerable. And at that point, you're likely to throw down the fact that you are under the sovereign authority of God and try to answer him on your terms. When you do, you don't have the shield of faith. You are naked in a firestorm. But you have the ability to assert. In fact, you have the ability to lie down in the midst of his most ferocious onslaught and there's nothing he can do to you but in that time God who by his spirit lives in you will arise. That's the principle of submitting to God. Regaining, retaking, understanding in the moment your identity. So you submit to God. That is how you resist the devil. And he will flee. I'm reminded of the Latin declension of the word to flee. Fugo, fugari, fossi, fossum. <laughs> I fly. And it represents a progressive. You know, I, I, I dream in, thing, in terms like that. <laughs> I talk to myself in terms like that. Fugo, fugari, fossi, fossum. I fly. And I'm, I'm reminded of the speech of, of Marcus Tullius Cicero when he denounced the Cati line and he got up and he stood up and he hastened and he fled. While most of you were working on the farm or working on cars, I had to go to school. My, my Indian mother assured me that I would go to school until I was gray. <laughs> and that's what I did. So there are all these vestiges of a formal education in my background like a prehensile tail. <laughs> all right. Okay, good. 30 minutes more. Uh, I want to move rapidly through the five graces. So the grace of salvation. To secure you. He is mighty to save and he is able to keep. Then there's the grace of reconciliation. God was in Christ. Reconciling the world to himself not counting men's sins against them. Reconciling is an accounting term. It presupposes a prior existing state. To be reconciled to something as opposed to be conciliated with something means that there was a prior existing state that was lost to which now you're meant to be put back. 
you're meant to be restored. So it's a grace of reconciliation. Before God formed you in your mother's womb, he designed a way for you to live in the earth that was specific to you. And the specificity is this, that the living God cannot be carried in all of his manifestations in one person. In fact, the only person in whom he was carried in that fashion was able to carry him in that fashion because of the spirit that was in that man. The spirit in that man was called Christ. The Lord Jesus carried the spirit of God in full manifestation. He carried the full characterization of who God is because that was his specific appointment. We carry the manifestation of who God is specific to what God had in mind for us by way of putting himself on display in us when he created us. So none of us represents the whole, but each of us being reconciled to that spirit that contains the fullness of God might be empowered to put in manifestation that portion of representation that was uniquely given to us. Okay? I know that you have to go back and listen to these messages because these are terms of art. It's a way of speaking with specificity. And sometimes we, sometimes we don't get it at the first turn because our ears need to be tuned to things. It's not that we're lacking in understanding. It's not that we're stupid. It's that there's a tuning, a frequency that is required to grasp these things. And I, I had to... Now I can say these things with this measure of ease, but you weren't there when I was saying, what? <laughs> the, huh? you know, the fullness of the statue that belongs to Christ? Uh, come again. <laughs> or say again. And I had to pause, pa pause it out with, with the same kind of specificity that now I know you have to. But my ability to speak it is simply because of my long familiarity with it. It didn't come right away. It didn't come for a long time. So, again, I don't mean to be pedantic or haughty or, or um, condescending. Not at all. We're both learning the language, understanding the concepts, and applying them. And that takes time. But that's the business of being mature. Then you will be able to handle that measure of representation that is yours. You will become familiar with it. You'll become fluid in it. You'll become functional in it. You will own it entirely. Then you shall not be moved. Right? So the grace of reconciliation. There's something that God intended to put on display, something of his divine nature 
that he intended to put on display uniquely through your person. And there's nobody else in creation who carries that mandate. Because the living God is so many splendid. That's why we need each other. That's why the goal is to arrive at oneness. In that oneness, the individual sparks that we represent, gathered together, will represent a conflagration that will in turn be the light of the world. We are lights in the world. Together we are the light of the world. Being reconciled to that for which God foreknew us. There is grace for that. Meaning, God is fully behind it. God means to bring forth in you the understanding of who he made you to be so that you get it and it becomes your new identity. Okay? There's grace for that. The eternal power and Godhead, the life of the Spirit are the guarantees that this is attainable to you. The only command, really, that the righteous has, the work of God is this, that you believe. I wish I had thought that up. <laughs> For this is the work of God, that you believe in the one who has been sent. Now, then there's the grace of conformation. So there's reconciliation, there is confirmation. We are familiar with confirmation in a religious setting. But that's not the confirmation that the scriptures speak about. Confirmation is when in, relig in a religious setting, when a child is, is inducted into and enrolled in church membership. That's not, I repeat, that is not biblical conformation. The term implies the knowledge of a standard. Confirmation intrinsically references an existing standard. You can't be conformed ab, uh, in absentia absent a standard because then the question is conformed to what? Confirmation implicitly implicitly references an existing standard. That standard is actuated when you, when you are assembled that standard is actuated in you when you, from beginning with, you're being assembled to the body of Christ. Because the Spirit is the one who baptizes you into the body of Christ. Now this is not the baptism of the Spirit. 
they meant their multiple baptisms. The doctrine of baptisms is an elementary doctrine. There's baptism in water, there's baptism of fire, there's the baptism of the Spirit, there's the baptism by the Spirit, baptism of suffering and the like. The distinction between the baptism of the Spirit and the baptism by the Spirit is this. Baptism of the Spirit is an endowment of power. For you shall receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the baptism of, of the Spirit is a baptism of empowerment. The baptism by the Spirit is an act of assembly. For by one spirit are you baptized into one body. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. What that is, is a specific assemblage. That's the baptism by which you are assembled to the body of Christ. The admonition, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, is not at all about meeting on Sundays. It is about you being properly assembled, bone to his bone. This is speaking of a relational assembly into the Corpus Christi by which you are fed and from which you can work. It's amazing how cheap we have rendered, how cheaply we have described profound things. In the rush to get people to come and sit in pews on Sundays. By the way, I'm not against meetings. Understand, we're in one right now. Meetings serve a purpose. The meetings are not who we are. The meetings serve us. You know, times and places and those things do not define us. They exist to serve us. Nothing in creation is holy except the things we designate as holy. A holy people have the authority to designate things as holy or set apart for their use. And after they're not using it, then the thing is as it is. I mean, you can meet in a roller rink if you want to. While you are meeting, you the holy people confer holiness upon the place. When you leave, it goes back to being a roller rink. You could meet in a theater, <laughs> in a movie theater. It hasn't occurred to you that this is what this place used to be? But as long as, but as, long as you possess it, it serves you, then for your, you consecrate it. It is not consecrated in and of itself. It is consecrated by usage. Your intent to use it authorizes you to set it apart. Every time I stay in a hotel room, I consecrate the room. I make it, I take possession of it, as a residence of an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven. And for the time I'm there, the place is holy. 
which means I don't allow evil spirits to torment my sleep. Because I have the authority to make the place holy. After that, I give it back to Mr. Hyatt. For his usage. So conformation requires a standard. And there is a prior existing standard. You are to be conformed to the likeness of the Son of God in the exercise of your calling. So if you see, and they see you, they see Christ. Christ is put on display when you have been conformed to his standard. When you're baptized into his body, you are assembled by that act to the pre-existing standard of his body, which is his own standard. His, in his body, his standard is obviously the standard. You do not... <laughs> these things are axiomatic. They're not particularly deep. You know? If you come to my house, I expect you to observe my standards. You know? And um, hopefully they're not onerous or uh, burdensome. Hopefully they contribute to your relaxation, your enjoyment, your liberty, and your peace. The thought that we must be conformed to the standard of another ought not to be so, uh, we ought not to respond so, visceral, so uh, viscerally to it. Because if the standard of the one to whom we've been conformed ennobles us, then the only reason we would wish to resist it is because we are determined to continue to be ignoble. If the, if, the, if the one, if the one in whose house we have been brought is a king and a priest, is lordly and majestic, kind and generous, merciful and compassionate, why would we desire to resist? being conformed to his standard. Unless we insist on being lawless, unregenerate, pugilistic, and just hard-headed. Or shall I say just Irish. <laughs> Colleen, that was for you. <laughs> you know it was calculated. <laughs> and why wouldn't I? And why shouldn't I? And why couldn't I? <laughs> Get two Irishmen together and they'll talk treason every time. <laughs> You see the point? To be conformed 
implies to be ennobled, to, to legitimately adopt the standard who is Christ. Look, I hear people saying all the time, people tell me all the time, I can't claim to be conformed to Christ. I mean, he's the standard, Christ. Well, let me put it to you this way. If after 40 years, you remain unconformed to the standard of Christ, then your condition is one in which you have been successful in resisting the, the grace of the Holy One to conform you to Christ. And at that point, you are apatheo. It's not a good thing. All right. When we come back, I will finish up the grace of maturation because with that comes responsibility. The child is born and grows through the stages of sonship to become mature, to be the one whom God gives. We ought not lament the condition of the world in its present state. That is simply the fashion in which mankind has de degenerated in his current state to his present place. God gives to the world every time it reaches these critical places, God gives to the world a crystalline uh, gifting of the person of Christ formed as the mature son. If the world were well behaved, if the world were accommodating of truth, then there would be no need for the mature son. But as you see this gross darkness coming, know this, that the living God intends to unveil to the earth in the midst of this darkness that which is the light by which it may walk. That is what we are looking for in the discussion of the grace of maturation. And the final grace is the grace of exact representation. And it's different from the grace of maturation. And we'll talk about those two things when we come back. But for now, we'll take a break. Peter?